Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, happy Independence Day. My prayer for all of you is that you end the day with the same number of appendages that you started with. So, I like to set realistic, hopefully, expectations. <laughs> my, uh, my first, the first church that I pastored was in a, a town named Joplin, Missouri. It's a small little church. I started off at 21 years old. And this church, they had a, a midweek Wednesday night Bible study. And before the Bible study, they did a, a family meal. Or we'd all get together and eat and then sit down and study through Scripture. So I was young and dumb, or younger and dumber. I don't want to give myself too much credit. And at the time, I didn't really know a whole lot about kids, hadn't had, didn't have kids, hadn't interacted with a lot of kids. So uh, we had a couple that was at this dinner, and they had a, a young daughter who was probably about two at the time. And so she's sitting in this high chair. I'm trying to interact with her and be playful and all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to get her to do something. I'm like, hey, give me a high five. Nope. She just shakes her head. Knuckles. Nope. Shakes her head. Wave. Like, I tried like 20 different things to interact with this very stubborn little girl. She wasn't having it. Just everything she did. Shakes her head. Nope. Not going to do it. And so I get it in my head because I'm a giant idiot. I'm like, okay, whatever I tell her to do, she's not going to do. So I'm like, hey, do this. And I playfully interacted, you know, shaking your hands all throughout your hair. She smiles, and she does it, which would have been such a sweet, sweet victory, except it was spaghetti night. She was eating with her hands and blonde. So her horrified mother looks over at me. Thank you for that. And now, having had a kid, I understand just how horrible that was. And that's when I realized that you have to be really careful around kids because they pick up on things and they observe things and sometimes they repeat things that you don't want them to repeat. But it's not just kids, is it? Anytime you're around another person, there's someone who's watching, someone who's listening who hears what you say and how you say it, who sees what you do and how you do it. Everywhere we go, everything we do, we're setting an example that someone is seeing. But what kind of example are we setting? So this is a final week in our series, Stand Firm, as we've been studying through the book of 1 Peter. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we are going to be walking through 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. And then next week, we start a new series called Rooted, which I'm really excited about. You're also stuck with me next week, so sorry for that. Uh, really unfortunate if you're not here next week. We'll all know why. One of the things I love to do in what little semblance of free time I have is I like to write. And one of the fav my favorite things in writing is when there's symmetry. And Peter 
does that really well. If you remember, this book starts off with Peter encouraging us to grow up into salvation, to mature in our relationship with Jesus, to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And now at the end of the book, Peter brings it full circle and he starts showing us a little bit about what maturity and growth in Jesus looks like. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. One of the things that becomes very apparent throughout Scripture is that biblical leadership is almost nothing like worldly leadership. And so Peter starts off by, by addressing essentially the motivation and attitudes of biblical leadership. And that is a biblical leader, a spiritual leader, leads willingly, out of a desire to lead, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain for themselves, and most importantly, not domineering. See, biblical leadership is not about power. It's not about control. It's not about who gets to sit in the room and call the shots and make all the big decisions. Biblical leadership is servant leadership. And so Peter starts off by addressing this and by acknowledging the perspective this is coming from. He goes, keep in mind, this is being shared with you from the person who has firsthand experience seeing the suffering of Jesus, seeing the glorification of Jesus and the raising of Jesus from the dead and his ascension into heaven. And so what Peter's telling us is because of what Jesus did and because of who Jesus is, here's what we should do. And he starts off addressing the elders, which is an official office within the church. And the temptation that we have is to then dismiss it as if he's not speaking to us. Oh, he's talking to elders. I'm not in that office. Therefore, it doesn't apply to me. It absolutely does. See, the call to follow Christ is a call to grow and to mature. And in the following of Jesus, we will by nature become leaders of people. See, the principle of what Peter is teaching us here is what it looks like to be a leader in the kingdom of God, what it looks like to be mature in the kingdom of God. And so don't just think of this as, hey, this is for a special select group of people. Think of this as, this is what maturing and growing should look like. And so Peter establishes, here's what growth in the kingdom of God looks like. Here's how we need to live, not if you're mature, not drawing attention to yourself, not leading so that you can brag about how active you are in church or how great you are, how many people you've helped. But if you're mature, if you are confident in your relationship with Jesus, then you should desire to invest in others and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus. And where there is not a desire to help others grow into maturity, it is likely because you yourself have not reached that point of maturity in your own faith. Because those who know Jesus more will naturally have a desire to share that understanding, to share that growth with others. And so for those who are mature, we are called to invest in others and to set an example for others, to which the question is, well, what kind of example are we being called to set? Well, can we get like uncomfortably practical with this? 
It's not about you. It's about Jesus. All throughout Scripture, this is presented to us. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. This is a definitive characteristic of the people of God. It's a repeated theme all throughout Scripture. It's not about you. It's about Jesus, to which we instinctively respond, yeah, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus. But I think it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Well, I just feel like it's not about you. It's about Jesus. But for me, it's, really, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Over and over and over again, this theme is presented. The Bible pounds that drum again and again. And yet, in our Western individualistic mindset, we don't know how to stop making it all about us. Look at the big life decisions that we make. How often do we, like, my favorite thing that I hear Christians do is they're like, you know what, I just felt like God was leading me to do this. And more often than not, when they use that expression, the thing that God was leading them to do was something that they already wanted to do. I just felt like God was leading me to buy that Mercedes with the spinning rims. Yep, that sounds like him. I just felt like God was leading me to eat all the cake and not share it with anyone. That's the one that I get all the time. I just felt like God was leading me to buy a boat because, you know, it's not for me. It's for ministry. I'm going to go out on the water and drink beer, and I'm going to have a countercultural relationship with people and tell them about Jesus. It's, a, it's service that's caused me to lead this boat. It's my love for Jesus that caused me. No, you just wanted a boat. And you tried to stamp God's seal of approval on it by saying, I felt God leading me to fill in blank. It's not to say that God doesn't lead us to do things. It's just amazing how often what God's leading us to do fits with what we already wanted to do. And it's not just about big life decisions. It's also about our spiritual decisions. Where people go to church, right? Why do they go there? I like the music. I like the programs. I like the way that guy talks. I like the style. It just works for me. We make our decisions based on our preferences. Even our spiritual decisions tend to be centered around our preferences. Like, ask somebody why they go to the church they do. Somewhere in their answer, there's going to be some variant of, I just really like, we don't know how to help ourselves. We don't know how to, it's just ingrained in our thinking. Because we are in a culture that continually conditions us to be consumers. Everything is about us. And yet Jesus says, you want to follow me, you need to let go of yourself. Multiple times in the New Testament, Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Here's what you need to do. Take up your cross, die to yourself, deny yourself, follow me. I left off one very little but very impactful word on purpose. We'll come back to that in a minute. See, we think of that call from Jesus to die to ourselves as our decision to give our lives to him. It's a one-time thing. It's a box that we check. Okay, I surrender to Jesus. Therefore, I've done it. I'm good. Cleared, cleared that objective. The word that I left off? Daily. You want to follow me? Take up your cross daily. Die to yourself daily. Deny yourself daily. 
It's not a one-time decision. It's a regular, ongoing process. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple. You got to stop being all about you, and you got to become all about me. Because church, Jesus does not exist to make you happy. You exist to bring him glory. There is one throne and one king who sits upon that throne, and that king ain't you. And praise God by his grace, it's not me. That wouldn't be good for anyone. The king that sits on the throne is Jesus. Life is all about Jesus. So when we make it about us, when we focus on ourselves, when we turn things, we draw attention away from Jesus to put it on ourselves, when we get upset or offended or frustrated because things don't go our way, that's not my preference, that's not how I want it done. If people just did things my way, it'd be so much better. What we demonstrate is that we've placed ourselves ahead of Jesus. And it happens so naturally, so effortlessly, that oftentimes we don't even realize that we're doing it. Peter says, don't live that way. Don't pursue the world. Don't think like the world. Don't lead and follow like the world. Just focus on Jesus. Grow in Jesus. Become more like Jesus. Because here's the thing. It's easy to forget. The disciples met Jesus three and a half years later, the entire church and a movement of God that would change the face of the world was thrust on their shoulders. Three and a half years from meeting Jesus to carrying the weight and the burden of the entire new move of God. How long have you known Jesus? Living things grow. Living things mature. That's what they do. And when living things don't grow and they don't mature, you start to wonder if something is wrong. If you've been a Christian for longer than a year, that means you've had a year to focus your heart, your mind, your life around Jesus. If you've been a Christian for longer than a year, you should know him well enough through the study of his word and the time that you've spent with him to be able to share him with others to be able to talk about him with confidence. You should be able to confidently talk about your faith because you should know him well enough to do that after one year. After two years, you may not be ready to have the entire weight of church responsibility thrust on your shoulders, but you should be ready to be an example. You should be ready to demonstrate and display for others what putting Jesus first in life looks like. You should be an example of selflessness and humility that others can see and follow. After three years, it's probably time for a short-term mission trip to see how God works outside of America. It's probably time to be engaged in godly community, to be actively serving. Jesus doesn't call us to come to him and then to camp out and just chill with some popcorn and watch everybody else. Jesus calls us to come to him and to grow in him. Every one of us is called to be a leader for his kingdom, and for his glory. And we should be actively pursuing, maturing, and growing in him every single day that we might be more able to do what Jesus has brought us to life in him to do. I'm going to tell you about Barry. Now, when I met him, Barry was in his mid-60s. 
He attended a mega church in Florida where my wife and I were living at the time. And he served in kind of their connection center where I was working at the time. And so <laughs> at the end of service, we would kind of talk with people and just try to help answer questions and guide them with whatever they needed, put them in touch with the right people, all that fun stuff. This church was loud. Like I've been to quieter rock concerts than their worship sets. And so one Sunday, after a particularly loud service, message was done, band was out playing, we'd gone to the back, and, and it was loud. Even, like, for me, loud. I have very small ears, so it takes a lot for the sound to get in. And Barry looks at me and goes, man, I love this. And I was surprised, because my experience with people of Barry's generation is that they don't tend to be the biggest fans of the loud rock-style music. So I was like, man, that's... I, that's interesting. I didn't think this would be your thing. And he said, no, it's, it's not. He goes, actually, the, the music hurts my ears. It's the only thing that even could have been taken as a complaint that I ever heard Barry say. And it was immediately followed by, but I don't care about that. It's not about me. It's about this. And he gestures out of the room. He goes, I love seeing young people with their hands in the air, lifting their voices in the worship of God. That's what matters. The style, nothing about how that church was styled fit with Barry's personality. None of it was tailored to him. None of it was focused on him. But he wasn't complaining about that. He didn't like sneak over to the sound guy and be like, could you turn it down for it? Could you help? Like, look, there's two groups of people here. Maybe we could find like a middle ground so that everybody's kind of a little happy and a little sad. Barry didn't care about that. Barry was only focused on the fact that people were responding to the gospel and that was more important to him than any other aspect. Every time I think about the conversation with Barry, I'm reminded of John 17. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed where he prays to God. He says, Father, if there's, if there's any way there's any chance, any other way we can do this, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, take it. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus put himself off to the side. Jesus let go of his preferences for the good of others. If that's what Jesus did, how can we do any less? Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So first he addresses the leaders, the shepherds of the church, who have been placed in charge of caring for, serving protecting the flock of God under the delegated authority of the chief shepherd, who is Jesus. Then he shifts gears, and he speaks to the younger. He says, you need to be subject to, that is to be in submission to those that God has placed in spiritual biblical authority over you, that you, they might set the example, that you might follow that example and grow in it. So biblical leadership is not like worldly leadership. But all leadership requires some foundation to operate. 
There has to be a motivation for the follower to do what the leader says if the, what the leader says doesn't fit with what the follower wants. There has to be that for leadership to work. In the world, it's about power and control. Your boss tells you what to do, you do it because he has financial power over you. The government says, this is how you have to behave or we're going to punish you. You do it because they have legal power over you. But when the kingdom of God is not built on power and control and dominating and forcing people into things, but rather it's built around servant leadership, how does that work? The foundational element for effective, the only way in which biblical leadership can be effective is with humility. And notice Peter specifically makes a point of taking it away from just the younger and puts it towards all of you, be in humility. Because here's the thing, if biblical leaders are not being humble, if they're not driven by humility, then they're controlling, manipulative, and dominating. But no, they're called to be humble, to humble themselves to serve others. And the people who are being served by those leaders are called to humble themselves into submitting themselves willfully, not by force, but willfully into the example that is being set for them so that those who are closer to Jesus can effectively lead those who are further from Jesus to be closer to Jesus without anybody playing for force or power or control. The only way it works is humility. So Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. Cover yourselves with humility. Surround yourselves with humility. Because the only way that this works is if everybody's humble. Church, there's only so many ways the Bible can say it's not about you before we run out of excuses for trying to make it about us. Humble yourselves. Clothe yourselves in humility that we might spur one another on towards faithfulness and growth in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Oh, actually, you know what? Let's end verse 5. You know what happens when you don't? When we don't humble ourselves, when we make it about us, when we turn it to our preferences, when we focus on ourselves... When we become kind of that church shopper that moves from one place to another, every time some group offends us, we're like, I'll go over here, and I'll sit here until they offend me, and then I'll go over here, and I'll stand here until they offend me, and we just bounce around from place to place, never growing because we don't have time to establish roots where we are, never experiencing biblical accountability where people know us well enough to be able to call us out. You know what happens when we make it about us? God opposes you. It's an opponent you probably don't want. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humility is to think of yourself less. Not lower, less. To be humble means you take the focus of your heart and the focus of your life off of yourself. And so what Peter's doing is saying, don't just take it off of yourself. Here's where you need to put it. He's offering us the alternative. He says, don't focus on yourself, focus on Jesus. Don't prioritize yourself, prioritize Jesus. Don't worry about yourself, focus on Jesus. And when you pursue him, when you fix your eyes on him, when you chase after him with all of your energy and attention, trust that in that journey, he's going to take care of the other stuff. Trust Jesus, focus on Jesus, let him handle everything else. Because guess whose hand is mighty? His hand. Guess whose hand is not? Your hand. 
And then he gives us this unbelievable comfort. Take all your fears. Take all your worries. Take all your concerns. Take all the things that stress you out in life because you have no control over them and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Cast all your anxieties on him. You know what that doesn't mean? It doesn't mean when you pray, tell Jesus about what's bothering you and then call it quits. To cast your anxieties, the word here literally means to remove, to throw off. What Jesus is inviting us to do here is not like a potluck dinner where you come with the dish and you set it down for a minute and then once the dinner is done, you take back whatever's left over. No, he's saying, put your worries and your concerns and your anxieties, put it in a disposable Tupperware container, set it here, and leave it here. Leave it with me. You don't get to take it back. Lay it down, surrender it, let it go. Give it to me. Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus, the Word of God, through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that has been made, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the resurrection, the gate, the door, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus, who is greater than all things, cares for you. He's not just willing to listen to you, willing to hear you. He wants to. Like that should make our little heads explode. The God that formed us and breathes life into us desires to have an active, meaningful relationship with us where we can pour ourselves out to him and he can take our concerns away. Church, waiting to come to Jesus until you get your life right. It's like waiting to go to the hospital until after you stop bleeding. Jesus doesn't say, fix yourself, then let's talk. He doesn't say, get your life together, then let's talk. He says, bring your baggage to me. Bring your brokenness to me. Bring your anxieties to me. Lay them at my feet. Leave them at my feet. And let me take care of it. Because he cares for us. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. <laughs> One of the greatest things about church and church people is how we decide which sins count as sins and which sins don't. Oh, that's a bad sin. We're going to yell at everybody who does that. Bad sin? Nah, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Take drinking, for example. Drinking is one that in a lot of Christian circles is a real big bad one. In fact, I'm, I'm fairly certain that I said beer and boat in the same sentence. I'm probably going to get some angry comments from that. So I'm turn off my email for this week. But we love to decide which sins count as bad. Right? Drinking's bad. Shouldn't do that. I'm against it. Drinking is sinful. No, no, no. You know what the Bible condemns more than drinking? Literally anything that impairs your judgment. In fact, the only biblical condemnation for alcohol is not the consumption of it, but the abuse of it, because the abuse of it results in the impairment of your judgment. 
And so with the religious heart and the fundamentalist Christian so oddly fails to understand, is it worry, anxiety, stress? Can impair your judgment just as much, if not more, than alcohol ever could. And yet, we condemn the one and condone the other. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Church, we have an enemy who seeks to destroy us who seeks to stop us from engaging in a relationship with God, and he has a lot of experience, and he's very good at what he does. His tactics are smarter than your tactics. One of the things that happens regularly, that I get to see regularly, is people who start taking a step in their relationship with Jesus. People start moving, and they start growing, because a lot of times we settle into complacency. I'm not talking about spectator Christians because you know what a spectator Christian and a unicorn have in common? They're both made up. You can't be a Christian and be a spectator. The two things don't coexist. But whenever we take a step in our journey with Jesus and we decide, you know, I'm going to start reading my Bible more or I'm going to start really engaging a godly community and get involved in a group or I'm going to serve or I'm going to lead a group or lead a ministry. I'm going to get involved with it. Anytime someone comes to me and says, I'm going to take a step. I'm ready. To, I'm really feeling this. I need to move in my relationship with Jesus. First thing I try to do is warn them. Not that they shouldn't take the step, but hey, what you need to know is if, as soon as you take that step, you need to be ready because attacks are coming. See, when you show up and you sit, when that's the kind of extent of your relationship with God is sitting and listening to a service and occasionally sprinkling some prayer into your life around meals and bedtime, the devil's got no reason to mess with you. It's not because you're safe. It's because you're not dangerous. So why bother? But as soon as you take a step out of that comfort zone, as soon as you start growing in Jesus and pursuing Jesus and surrendering yourself to the Spirit of God as he seeks to work and transform and mold you, as soon as you start saying yes to that transformation and moving with that, you become dangerous. Not because you're dangerous, but because the Spirit of God working through you is extremely dangerous. And so the devil's brilliant tactic is this. We stand here, right, complacent, comfortable, chilling in our little spot. Finally, the conviction of the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. So I'm going to take a step forward. As soon as we take that step forward, he attacks us. He brings suffering into our lives. And we go, oh, you know what, I don't, I don't like that. I'm just going to, it's more comfortable here. I, didn't, I tried, it didn't work. You know, I tried to follow, it just didn't work. So I'm just going to stay here. Suffering is not punishment. We shouldn't be surprised by suffering. In fact, we should be surprised when we're not suffering. We should be concerned when the devil's not attacking us because that's usually an indication that we're safe. We're securely in our comfort zone, not posing any risk to him, not moving, not growing, not changing. When we suffer, it's not some strange and foreign thing. It's a natural thing. When we suffer, there are two things that we should remind ourselves First, 
Jesus suffered first. Jesus says, no servant is greater than his master. If we follow Jesus and Jesus suffered, the natural expectation is that we're going to follow Jesus into suffering. Second is when you suffer, you never suffer alone. When you suffer for the kingdom of God, when you suffer out of your love for and devotion to Jesus, or suffer because you are in pursuit and growth in Jesus, you join the ranks of Christians all over the world and all throughout history who've had the privilege and the honor of suffering for Jesus. You will never, in the Christian faith, suffer alone. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Suffering always precedes glory. It did for Jesus. It does for us. Eternal glory always follows earthly struggles. In this world, you'll have pain. You'll have loss. You'll have heartache and hardship. But those are temporary. Those are momentary. And then the God of all grace comes and he restores you and he establishes you. The word restore here literally means to mend. To sin broke us. And the pain and the hardships of life shattered us into even smaller pieces. But God comes and he puts us back together again. He makes us whole. He makes us complete. He stands us up. He builds us up. And he makes his dwelling within us until he brings us into his dwelling for eternity. And the reward for momentary faithfulness in temporary struggles is eternal grace and glory. So what do we have to worry about? What do we have to be anxious over and stressed for to know that any problem that we have is but a moment? And the glory we have from Jesus is forever. Just the thing we need to understand is you cannot hold on to worry and hold on to Jesus at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. And so the more we cling to our anxieties, the more, the longer we hold on to our stresses and our worries and our fears, the more time we are spending away from Jesus. But only one of those things is worth clinging to. When concludes in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likely chosen, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. It's the wrap-up to the letter that we so often like to breeze over because it's a bunch of details about people we don't know and don't have any impact on our lives. Yeah, cool, that's the end of the book. We're moving on. And we miss the significance of what those details show us. 
The church is not just some place that we go. It's not just some box that we check. But the end of every one of these letters that address people by name and talk about them tells us is this was a community that was connected. This was a group of people who knew each other, who loved each other, who encouraged and supported each other and knew each other by name. This is not just something that we do to check a box so we get to go to heaven. This is our family. This spiritual bond of brotherhood that we have in Jesus, a community that is supposed to be a community of humility and compassion and grace and love and unity should be one of the most important things in our lives in this world. Jesus gave us a new and greater family, not to neglect our biological family, but that is far more significant and far more important than it. Because the blood of biology is nothing compared to the blood of the Son of God that bonds us together in Him. This place is a place that we connect, that we grow, that we support each other, that we challenge each other, that we care for each other, that we grow each other because discipleship biblically always happens in community. Don't lose sight of that just because the world is busy and we live in a culture that's all about the individual. The kingdom of God is all about the community. See, 1 Peter is a book that calls us to stand firm in the grace of God, that prepares us for struggles because in this world you're going to have pain, you're going to have loss, you're going to have hardships, you're going to have struggles. But we don't belong to this world. We belong to Jesus. So don't focus on the world. Don't pursue the world. Don't live for the world. Focus on Jesus. Focus, grow, pursue, live for Jesus. Grow in him and help others grow in him. Because the Jesus that we believe in, the Jesus that we follow, empowers us, sustains us, and equips us with the peace and the hope of the gospel. The gospel of God's grace is this marvelous mystery of joy through suffering, of peace through pain, of eternal glory carried on the shoulders of earthly struggles. But in all things, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our freedom. Today, we celebrate Independence Day. Today, we celebrate freedom as a people. But the freedom that we celebrate here is a fading candle next to the sun in comparison to the freedom that we have in Jesus. Galatians 5 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Jesus says, I set you free so that you could be free, not so that you could return to the world of sin, not so that you could return to religion and rule keeping. He says, I died 
to break the chains that bound you so that you could experience true freedom in me. The freedom that Jesus provided was paid for with this. His body broken for us. God, all-powerful, almighty, creator God, allowed his body to be broken out of his love for you and for me. The impact of that, the acknowledgement, the understanding that this body is a declaration of God's love for us should drive us to pursue, to love, and to follow him. Let's take it together. At the Last Supper, Jesus, after they'd broken bread, took the cup, and he said to his disciples, this cup represents the new covenant that is in my blood. Whenever you take of it, do so in remembrance of me. In the Jewish mind, power was in the blood. This isn't just symbolic of the death of Jesus. This is symbolic of the power of God that we take into ourselves, the Holy Spirit of God that is in work within us, transforming us, molding us, making us more like Jesus. The power that we have to resist sin, the power that we have to die to ourselves comes from the power that Jesus gives us with him. Let's take it together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise that is deserved to you, that our hearts and our minds would be fixed on you. God, I pray that we would be a people with a relentless hunger for more of you, that we would never be satisfied, that we would never be content with the amount of you that we have, but that we would always be seeking more, craving more, pursuing more of you. God, I pray that you would make us a people who don't just receive your grace and receive your love and receive your life, but that share it with others, that we would grow in you and that we would have a passion to lead others to do the same. For those of us who are younger and immature, I pray that you would grow us, that you would give us a heart and a passion to pursue you until we reach maturity. And for those who are mature, I pray that you would stir in us a heart to invest and help those who are not where we are grow, that they might reach where we are and one day surpass where we are for your glory. In all things, may this be about you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen. Amen.